Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In a new paper on work and opportunity before and after incarceration, just published at Brookings, authors Adam Looney and Nicholas Turner find, among other things, that boys who grew up in families in the bottom 10% of the income distribution are 20 times more likely to be in prison on a given day in their early 30s than children born to the wealthiest families. To discuss the interconnection among poverty, incarceration, and race, I'm joined in the Brookings Podcast Network studio today by Camille Busset, a senior fellow and director of the Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative here at Brookings. Prior to Brookings, she served in a number of capacities related to expanding financial opportunities for low-income populations, including at the Consultative Group to Assist the Poor and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Stay tuned in this episode for a new Metro Lens segment featuring a look at economic development incentives that many state and local governments offer to get corporations such as Amazon and its second headquarters to locate there. And after the interview, I talk with an expert who has examined whether your medical information is safe from privacy breaches that may occur not on the health provider side, but rather with the business associates related to healthcare provision. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now on with the interview. Camille, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. It's great to be here again, Fred. Thanks. So you are the director of the Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative here at Brookings. What is that? So that initiative is rather new here at Brookings, and our focus is really to advance the economic prospects for low-income, poor Americans, and for communities of color. And talk about the three terms in the title. You have race, you have prosperity, and then you have inclusion. Yeah, thanks for asking that. So the race part of the title is really meant to signify that we are going to have a particular lens on race whenever we do any of the analysis, any of the work that we do. And we think that's really important because it's a lens that seems to be missing so much from a lot of social analysis and particularly sociological research. And I want to make sure that we put that front and center. The prosperity part of it is actually a decision I made because I want to make sure that this initiative speaks to the average person. And the average person can identify with the word prosperity. It's used a lot in communities of color, prosperidad, in Latino communities. And in African-American communities, it's a pretty common term that's used to signify, you know, well-being and happiness. And so I wanted it to resonate with those communities. And then the inclusion part is just something that's really near and dear to my heart. I really believe we are a nation that strives for inclusion. A lot of flaws, but that's a goal and it's something that we should work towards. And I'm I'm very committed to that. As I mentioned in the introduction to you, a lot of your past work had to do with financial inclusion for low-income groups. That's right. And so the lens that I always have had there was how is it that you can get low-income and poor families into the economic mainstream by leveraging the financial system. And the financial system here in the U.S. and also globally doesn't really work for those people. It doesn't work for people who have low incomes, who have transient streams of income, and for people who are sort of in and out of the workforce. And so a lot of my effort has really been focused on that as well. So you and another Brookings senior fellow named Richard Reeves recently appeared on one of our other Brookings Podcast Network shows called Intersections with Adriana Pita to talk about the research that you've both done on how the middle class is becoming more race plural. Now, I'll let listeners go download that episode of Intersections to get the real deep dive 
into the conversation, but can you just briefly talk about what it means that the middle class is becoming more race plural? Sure, absolutely. So Richard has launched a new initiative on the future of the middle class, and as he's delved into that and tried to figure out how best to define the middle class, what he keeps finding is that the middle class as we define it, which are people who earn 30000 to $80,000 a year, so it's pretty low income, those folks are increasingly non-white, and so they're increasingly brown, which is very much in keeping with the demographic trends of the U.S. So if you just model, just based on the population demographics, if you just model how that group will look over time in 2042, you will see that by and large, the middle class will be majority brown in 2042. So what we mean by that, by the middle class is race plural, is that the middle class is no longer white. And we have to really think more about policies that help the middle class that also incorporate a race lens as well. It seems to me that maybe up until now, but over the years especially, there's been this sort of assumption that when we hear the term middle class, kind of our minds just go to, oh, what the white people are middle class. But that's never been the case. But it's certainly less and less the case now, right? Right. That's true. And, you know, you hit on something there, which is that there's a very long history of the symbolism around the middle class, the images, a lot of the public policy, particularly around sort of New Deal and slightly after, that really promoted the, quote, middle class. But when you saw the imagery and you saw the details of policy, particularly residential policy, et cetera, union policies, it really is pretty clear that what was meant is the white middle class. And as you say, that might be what people have had in their minds. And often our language unwittingly indicates that too, because you'll often hear people talk about the black middle class. And if middle class had meant sort of everybody, we wouldn't need another adjective in front of middle class. But that is definitely changing. And what that means is that we really need to think about the history by which people of color have come to the middle class and what is likely to work for them, given that particular history, if they are going to move beyond where they are now and be able to embrace and experience economic mobility. So, Camille, I want to ask about that second word in the title of the initiative, prosperity. How do you measure prosperity? That is a great question. And I think the Brookings scholar in me would love to give an answer that's pretty quantitative. But what I want to say about that is that prosperity is one of those things that people know it when they experience it. And I'll just give you a really quick example. So I think When we talk about prosperity and well-being, people are talking about being able to sort of manage their sort of day-to-day life, be able to plan for the future, and also have choice in occupation, in what they might want to specialize in, choice in where they want to live, what car they can buy, whether they're buying a new or a used car, their ability to move up in life. It's about choice. And so I think when people experience that, that's when you know you've kind of reached prosperity. But for the purpose of the initiative here, I'm really defining prosperity as a combination of job and educational opportunity primarily. And how much of a factor is 
where a person lives in this country. It's huge. Our metro program is very laser-focused on that, and I think appropriately. Where you live makes such a difference. There's lots and lots of research and a lot of current research that, particularly with Ross Chetty, that shows that where you live really often determines what your lot in life is. And so I think it's extremely important. And it's also important when you think about economic measures. So if you are earning $100,000 or $85,000 or $20,000 and you're living in a place with a lower cost of living, you will have a different experience of your quality of life than if you're living in New York City or San Francisco or something like that. So in the introduction, I also referenced a new paper that's just come out from Adam Ludy and Nicholas Turner on pre- and post-incarceration outcomes in America. And you've just written a blog post that can be found on our website that addresses that paper, especially from a race perspective. And you open the piece by stating the U.S. is facing a national crisis. What is the national crisis? So the national crisis is the fact that African-American boys, poor African-American boys and poor Native American boys simply do not have a chance to participate in this economy. And that has been a long-standing crisis. So I don't want to pretend that the crisis is something that just popped up with Adam Looney's paper. <laughs> but it's a longstanding crisis. But when you have a significant portion of your population completely locked out of any opportunity, then that is a crisis. You write in the piece that the level of exclusion faced by these men, African-American and Native American, is staggering. And I was just struck by your use of the word exclusion in this piece because inclusion is such an important part of your research and your project. Can you expand on that? idea of exclusion. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about inclusion and exclusion, I think about social systems primarily and how is it that we are able to interface with others and how is it that we're able to take advantage of the various social and, you know, economic institutions in our country. So From my perspective, when I talk about the exclusion of poor African-American boys and Native American boys, I'm talking about the complete inability of those boys to be able to take advantage of or access any of the opportunities that this country affords people of all sorts. And the exclusion piece is really both historical and it's contemporary. That exclusion occurs because of our history and legacy around excluding African Americans in every sphere of economic life. It also includes the long history of putting Native Americans, first confiscating their lands and then putting them on tribal lands and then increasingly starving those areas of resources. So exclusion there. It also means a very poor experience around education. So in the cases of poor African-American boys and poor Native American boys, when you look at the kinds of educations that they receive, it's usually subpar. And so again, they're excluded from really the best or even the most modest opportunities educationally. And those things compound over time to make it very difficult for them to be included in vibrant employment markets. So that is why I have labeled that exclusion. And a lot of my work, at least for the first five years of this initiative, will really be focused on how we break that history and how we create new patterns of inclusion. There's two very specific historical examples that you include in your post that have particularly affected 
African-Americans throughout many decades in America, and that's residential redlining and New Deal era policies. Can you address those two specific examples of historical practices. Sure. And this was very nicely done by Rothstein in his book. But I would say the most critical example there is that during the New Deal, when there were efforts to expand the middle class, and we've already talked about who that might mean, there were companion efforts at the state level and even locally to try to define local real estate markets. And those definitions were made in such a way that you had sort of, you know, thriving and desirable neighborhoods, and then you had neighborhoods that weren't desirable, and where, you know, the stock was actually declining in terms of value. And when those delineations were made, the real estate covenants around them were that in the thriving areas, you did not want to have black people. That was not so in the more depressed areas. And you will have developers who are actually on record saying, you know, I'm not going to have black people buy into this neighborhood because then white people will not buy into this neighborhood and therefore the stock will not appreciate and the overall value of those homes and that residential track will not appreciate. So there was actually a fairly consistent set of policies, both at the national, state, and local levels that really eliminated uh, high-value property for African Americans. And so over time, what you find is that the kind of segregation that evolved is still in place today, even though redlining is no longer in place. So if you look at Baltimore and you transpose the map of redlining onto current residential patterns in Baltimore, and this is true in a lot of places, but I'm just picking on that one, you'll find that it almost exactly coincides with the redlining of previous eras. And so that tells you a lot about why it is that we have certain areas, particularly in urban areas, that have a lot of concentrated poverty. And so that's one area where I feel we really need to make some amends. I mean, that is a long-standing historical practice that is going to be very difficult for people to transcend without, I think, significant help. Time for Metro Lens, a monthly commentary by an expert from the Metropolitan Policy Program. Hi, this is Joseph Perella, fellow here at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. In September of last year, Amazon, the world's fourth largest company at the time, announced that it would be constructing a second global headquarters in a North American city. This set off the largest corporate attraction competition in U.S. history. And since then, 238 proposals have been narrowed to 20 shortlisted cities. As part of that competition, Amazon requested each jurisdiction to list their tax incentive programs that would be used to defray the cost of their proposed $5 billion investment. Critics looked askance at a company valued at close to three-quarters of a trillion dollars requesting public subsidy, but many cities and states have responded with multi-billion dollar incentive packages. The reality is that economic development incentives are a core part of U.S. economic policy, with state and local governments spending tens of billions of dollars on them each year. Why? Well, the short answer is jobs. 
Economic developers and elected officials argue that incentives can push businesses towards creating jobs in their city or even within a particular neighborhood in their city that needs them most. And in some instances, that is undoubtedly true, but academic economists remain pretty skeptical about an incentives-led economic development approach. This is because incentives are not usually well-targeted to those companies who A, would actually be influenced by an incentive, or B, are conducting activities taxpayers want to be incentivizing, such as paying good wages, investing in job training, or partnering with local community groups or schools. But even the most intense critics, and there are many, acknowledge that incentives could be societally beneficial were they only reserved for those companies whose activities align with the public's interest. The challenge is that we don't know a lot about how incentives are targeted, since that information is rarely publicly available. So given this, Sifan Liu and I partnered with four cities, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, San Diego, and Salt Lake, to analyze five years of their economic development transactions to better understand which firms, industries, and communities actually receive incentives. What we found was both positive and revealed some challenges. On the positive side, we found that across those four cities, incentives go to firms in innovative industries that export outside the local economy and bring wealth back in. Partly as a result, these incentivized industries pay wages that are 25% higher than the economy overall. These are all good things. But addressing economic and racial inclusion through incentives remains a challenge. Black and Hispanic workers, two groups with lower employment rates and income levels on average, remain underrepresented in incentivized industries across those four cities. Because of the amount of taxpayer money on the line, economic development incentives remain a really controversial public policy topic. But cities and states can take steps to make them more transparent and inclusive. First, cities and states can get better at being upfront with their economic and societal objectives and ensure that incentives align with them. This seems really simple, but oftentimes they don't. Second, cities and states can get better about transparently posting the incentives they do provide and then rigorously evaluating what happens to those companies that receive them so that we can better understand what works. And we commend the cities who collaborated with us on this report for doing just that. And finally, cities and states should only reserve incentives for those firms that will actually advance broad-based opportunity. This could be because they pay middle-class wages or because of the activities they conduct, like job training or research and development or local community partnerships. Now much remains to mainstream these activities in communities across the country. Fortunately, we're observing progress across the country toward a more responsible and rigorous incentives approach in many US cities, signaling a nascent but necessary evolution in the practice of economic development. You can find this report on our website at brookings.edu. Joseph's report with Sifan Liu is titled Examining the Local Value of Economic Development Incentives, Evidence from Four U.S. Cities. It seems to me, and tell me if this is true, but it seems to me that one of the primary methods of intergenerational transfer of wealth 
is through real estate. That's correct. And if African-American families especially have been redlined out of decent real estate options, say, since after World War II especially, they haven't been able to accumulate and transfer wealth to the next generation and to the next generation. You're absolutely correct about that. And in addition to that, the other area that Thomas Shapiro shows in his book, Toxic Inequality, that is also important to accumulating wealth and to economic mobility is the ability to access quality jobs that have particular kinds of benefits, so health benefits and pension benefits. And you see after the New Deal and even prior to that, the union movement really made sure to keep African Americans out of unions. And union membership was often a key to those high-quality jobs. So again, you have what is a sort of compounded kind of exclusion based on these sort of residential redlining and also the exclusion from unions. So despite this historical and contemporary exclusion of African Americans and Native Americans from better economic opportunities and so on, there are still people who would say, well, everyone has the same opportunities. They should just work harder. And if they do things that are illegal and go to jail, well, that's their own choice. How do you address that kind of mentality? Well, you know, of course, certainly that sentiment exists, and we've heard that pretty recently with a reference to DACA-eligible students. So there is some really interesting research that was done in 2015 and then has continued by Raj Chetty and team. And Adam Looney and Nicholas Turner also cite this in their work. And that research basically shows that in cases where very low-income families were given housing vouchers and were allowed to move to more thriving areas with young children, those young children who pretty much share the same profile as the young men we are talking about here actually did a lot better. And so back to your question about location, I think that data really emphasizes how important location is to an opportunity trajectory. And so the rebuttal to the sentiment that people just need to work harder is that you can see that these very same people given a different opportunity structure, will do better. But it is the opportunity structure that is actually preventing them from being able to seize opportunities and to be able to, you know, realize their full human potential. I'm going to reflect for a moment on a remarkable event that happened at Brookings very recently. And after the event, I interviewed some of the participants for the podcast episode that will come out next time. And that was Chicago Cred. Um, yes. Arnie Duncan, a non-resident senior fellow, former secretary of education, and some of his collaborators in Chicago Cred and some of the young men who are participants in that from Chicago participated in this panel. And it was remarkable for a lot of reasons. But picking up on what you were just saying, Arnie Duncan said that we're not giving these young men a fourth chance or a third chance or a second chance. We're giving them a first chance. Correct. And that mm-hmm. was it's very remarkable. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think there's a kind of general sentiment that young men, particularly those who are incarcerated pretty young, and I think a lot of these young men were pretty young because they were still young, I think there's a feeling that, well, you know, they already had one chance and so now they're out of prison. And so as a society, we sort of feel a moral responsibility to give them a second chance. What you find is that these very same young men, these are the ones I'm talking about, really didn't have a chance from the get-go. So there was never a first chance. They never had an opportunity to have a good education, to be in a place, a location that afforded them with a range of 
opportunities to mix with different kinds of people, to know people who have jobs, who have held them, to be in communities where there's a lot of civic engagement, and to be in communities where, you know, there isn't just sort of ubiquitous poverty. So I think Secretary Duncan is correct about that. It's just that their pathway to the first chance has been particularly damaging, but they still deserve a first chance. Well, you've suggested a new deal for poor African-American and Native American boys. What does such a new deal look like? I think I've finally come to the perspective that there is a special and particularly onerous position that poor African-American and poor Native American boys are in. And it is determined largely by the history that we've just talked about. And almost no other group experiences that. In addition to that, particularly for African-American boys, but I believe it's also true for Native Americans, they also combat a really negative perception. And that perception has been developed over hundreds of years. African-Americans as being very violent and brutal, et cetera. And so my feeling is that that kind of unique profile in the United States really requires a unique set of solutions that is targeted to them because of these histories. And so what I mean by New Deal is something that is very, very comprehensive that starts when these young men are babies because there have been studies that have shown that even young pre-K kids, when they're in pre-K, particularly African-American boys, have been treated already like they are on the route to the judicial system. So there's a difference in the treatment they receive when being disciplined compared to their white counterparts. And that starts early. You know, pre-K is like three, four, two even. So we need to have a set of programs that really start supporting them and recognizing their need for affirmation and validation very early on. And then we also need to have within the school system a very different approach to how we support them and educate them. And so we need to have, I think, a combination of wraparound services, which really help them support them from an economic perspective. But we also need to start thinking about what it means to have equity in education and what we would need to do in order to correct the education environments within which they find themselves and really bring them to a point where they can take advantage of other opportunities. And then we need to have a range of programs that allow them to create social networks with communities and other people who are thriving. And so I think you need all of that to be able to rectify this problem. So it's not cheap. Well, are you hopeful that such an approach, such a new deal could actually come about in this age of government cutbacks and continued structural racism? Well, let me tell you my approach to public policy. So public policy is a long game. You never solve these things overnight. So the quick and brief answer is under the Trump administration, I would not expect this kind of approach to be embraced. But what I want to do is start the conversation. And I want us at Brookings and in other think tanks and other places to start thinking about what would a new deal look like? And maybe in 20 years, we might have one. And what are the consequences if we don't get there? Well, I think we will increasingly have a portion of the population that is completely excluded and just basically will never have any chance of participating in American life as we know it. Well, Camille, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. And we will certainly keep following all the great research that you and colleagues are doing around race, prosperity, and inclusion. Thanks a lot, Fred. I really enjoyed it. 
You can learn more about the initiative Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion on our website. We can also find the new research by Adam Looney and Nicholas Turner on work and opportunity before and after incarceration. Our personal medical data is held by healthcare providers, and we hope for the sake of our privacy that they protect it. However, that same private information is also available to third-party business associates of our healthcare providers. What are the privacy rules and safeguards for those entities? I'm in the studio today with a scholar who has researched this question. Nia Miragi is a fellow in the Brookings Center for Technology Innovation and an expert on the economics of health information technologies. Nia, it's nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. You were on this podcast to talk about your research on privacy breaches in health data, but mostly focused on the medical side of it. And now you have a new research with Ram Gopal at the University of Connecticut. The title is Profiles in Patient Privacy Protection, How HIPAA Omnibus Rules Effectively Reduce the Number of Data Breaches Among Healthcare Providers, Business Associates. So we're going to unpack that in a second, but let's start with the big picture. Can you explain how our privacy as patients is protected? Well, that's a very nice question. And I have to say that the only safeguard for the protection of privacy of the patient today is a two-decade-old legislation called Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, commonly known as HIPAA, which was signed into law in 1996. It defines a set of basic and common-sense requirements for healthcare providers to protect their patients' privacy. The most popular example is the form that you sign at your doctor's office in which you provide consent so that he can share your medical records with others. There is an office, a very small office within HHS called the Office for Civil Rights, which oversees and enforces HIPAA. If there is a breach incident, not only providers can be held accountable at both civil and criminal courts, but also they will undergo an agonizing and excruciating audit by Office for Civil Rights, commonly known as OCR. It takes months, even years, and requires significant organizational resources to respond to the OCR demands. That audit by itself is sometimes more burdensome than its subsequent penalties. In my last report that you mentioned earlier, I talked with more than 20 of the organizations that had to deal with these audits, none of them described as a pleasant experience. And I also have to mention that unlike other industries, except HIPAA, there is not enough business incentives in the healthcare industry to invest in security and privacy protection efforts. The reason is simple. You know, imagine if Amazon fails to protect its customers' credit card information, it loses some of its sales and revenues. On the other hand, if a hospital fails to protect patient privacy, the patients still come to the hospital mainly because they have not many other choices. So part of the new research has a focus on healthcare providers' business associates. Can you quickly explain what some examples of business associates are? Here's where I have to give you the most troubling news. Your medical data is being shared with so many other people and companies that are not involved in your medical care directly. Examples include contractors that provide billing services for hospitals or even debt collectors who come after you if you don't pay your hospital bill. And these aren't covered by the HIPAA rules, the HIPAA law. Yes, they were not covered by HIPAA until 2013. Until 2013, they were excluded from HIPAA, which basically meant that 
they were not held accountable if they failed to keep the information confidential. As you can imagine, since they faced no consequences, these third-party contractors, which are commonly known as business associates, didn't take privacy seriously at all. Okay, so then what happened? There was some change to the rules or a change to the law? Well, on January 25, 2013, the Office for Civil Rights announced the most important shift in the healthcare privacy law. Since the original HIPAA in 1996, the omnibus rules were the most important shift in policy that were announced. And from now on, business associates had to comply with the same set of regulations that healthcare providers have been complying with. And if they experienced a breach incident, they will now be held accountable to the same set of standards as others. It basically leveled the playing field. So can you then talk about what your research question was and what you and your co-researcher Ram Gopal did to investigate the question? Well, we basically intended to examine the effects of this shift in policy. You know, now that business associates are held accountable, is it going to reduce their breach incidents or not? And we figured it prevented 165 privacy breaches from happening. This amounts to about 60% of the breaches among these business associates which could have affected as many as 17 million Americans. So basically, it helps 17 million Americans to keep their medical information confidential. Well, what do you think is the main driver of this decrease in breaches or this increased security amongst the business associates? Is it, are there increased penalties or is there something else that's behind this positive effect? The monetary penalties are significant. It can go up to $1.5 million per breach. So it is significant. But I also think the law created a culture of accountability. Mm -hmm. And do not forget the hassle of the OCR audits. You know, here is an example that I give you. When driving, most people do not speed, not because they cannot afford the speeding ticket, but because they do not want to deal with the police, you know, being stopped, going to the court, and etc. So while the monetary penalties are definitely a reason, I think the culture of accountability that was created as a result of this law and the hassle of the audit are other drivers that makes business associates take privacy much more seriously. It strikes me as a patient, as an example of good governance to have expanded the HIPAA protections into this field. Now that you've examined the effect of the law in this sector, are there other places maybe in other aspects of the healthcare system or in other areas that we interact with with our personal privacy that these protections, these kinds of protections should be extended to? I think it's a very difficult question, primarily because we only examine the benefits, but not the costs of this law. You know, like any other law, the costs of the enforcement by government, which here is the OCR, and the costs of compliance by businesses and people should be taken into account before judging the effectiveness of the law. We know that it prevented 165 breaches, but at what cost? To be able to answer your question, I think we need to have a clear understanding about the costs of HIPAA, which I hope to explore in my next report. Neam, thanks for your time today. And you can find his report with Ram Gopal on our website at brookings.edu. My 
thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Thanks also to our intern, Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. Fred Dews.